joining us is uh, Rebecca Higgett. Hello, Rebecca. So Rebecca is the Curator of History of Science and Technology at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. And she wrote an article in The Guardian raising the question of the lack of respect towards astrologers during the fallout from when Dara O'Brien and Professor Brian Cox, <laughs> what am I supposed to say, made comments on the subject. And we also have Nicola Buckley, who works here as the, hello Nicola, <laughs> as the head of community affairs here at the University of Cambridge. One thing in, in the information that was sent about you, it said that you admit to having spent a lot of time in health food shops looking for cures and solutions to problems that a GP appointment couldn't provide, but you're now a self-confessed science fan. I'll start off with kind of saying, how nice do you think we have to be to uh, people with alternative views? Because you've said that you go around health food stores and you're a science fan. So as a, as a science community, when talking to people, do we have to be a bit more open, as perhaps you, you might suggest? I'll start with you, in fact. Um, what I wrote on astrology was actually um, sparked not by the comments by um, that you were referring to about um, astrology being rubbish, but actually um, about a lot of people um, who were skeptics, fans of science and so on, um, actually getting their facts wrong about what they thought astrologers knew and didn't. And they were just making themselves look stupid to me because I had a bit of knowledge that they didn't. So that's what sparked me off. And I also felt that it wasn't going to be very useful as communication goes if you have your facts wrong because you're only going to antagonize people you're speaking to. Um, anyone who's not sure might know and think that you're stupid and you don't know and you're not giving them you know, you're not putting yourself in a position of knowledge in order to engage with them. So, but the, the specific question about being nice to people, I mean, um, I would agree with some of the other comments. I mean, perhaps um, the people you're trying to talk to are not um, the people who are literally trying to peddle um, medicines that you don't agree with or um, anything like that. But there are a lot of people out there who aren't quite sure, who might come across the comments that you're making. And if you're speaking in a manner that is antagonistic or using phrases that aren't familiar to them or are categorizing people, I don't think that's going to be a very good way of beginning a conversation with people um, and changing their minds um, if that's what you aim to do. So part of my comment here is a question of um, what people are actually aiming to do, who they're trying to speak to. Are they genuinely trying to change people's minds or are they just getting together as groups or, um, of individuals like-minded, um, raising it um, on the agenda among people who are probably likely to agree with you anyway, or are you generally trying to get across a message to people who might think very differently than you do? So I think there is an issue about tone and about who might come across your comments and how they'll feel. My other point is that I feel um, that I'm very much an outsider in this kind of thing. I very accidentally got into this whole world. I stepped into Twitter, which is not something that historians do that much. There are some of us on there, but nothing like the number of scientists or um, people who are interested in science, I think. Or certainly, I got into this group and I heard about things that um, were really quite new to me. So we're talking about engagement, but I hadn't heard of any of these campaigns before. And I'm someone who's a historian of science, I'm interested in science, but I knew nothing about this. And if I don't know about it, and if things that I can say actually get the backs up of some people, um, which some of the things I have written very much have done, people seem to misunderstand what I have to say very readily, then I think that's a problem because you're losing people who ought to be your allies. They're just coming from a different place. Yeah, I mean... Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, in terms of your comments, I think you're absolutely right that uh, it is important to 
um, consider the people who, are, who, who you're trying to speak to. And I think uh, when it comes to the, you know, the 1023 campaign, we've been very, very specific that we're trying to catch the people not who genuinely, trying to talk to the people not who are um, homeopaths themselves necessarily. That's not what this campaign is about. It's the people who don't know anything about homeopathy. And we've been very, very um, cautious at and, and every stage to make sure that we're not using aggressive languages. You know, you'll never find anything that we've said where we say that homeopaths are liars or frauds or cheats or that people who believe in homeopathy are stupid. We absolutely don't say that, mainly because we don't believe it um, for, a, for a second. Sorry? Well, partly because we'd be sued, absolutely, but also because we, we fundamentally don't believe that. Um, it, it, it doesn't take very much to... Um, to be to be to you, uh, start using homeopathy and to, to not be aware of what homeopathy is, um, just using homeopathy as our, our pet example, um, to not be aware of what it is and to see the uh, benefits of things like regression to the mean, which we know are, are very real benefits that that are uh, controlled uh, are attached to placebos. Um, those are very very powerful. What we prefer to do is try and explain what those benefits are. So you won't find anything of us being particularly aggressive for exactly that reason. Uh, and, and one of the things that we do, um, I do, a, as, as Reese actually mentioned, I do a podcast there called Righteous Indignation, where on a weekly basis or a fortnightly basis, we actually have someone on the show whose beliefs are different from our own. We'll have someone who is a crystal healer or a, a Reiki practitioner or somebody who uh, actually um, hunts ghosts and, and sells you know, Ouija boards. And it's, it's, we're very, very cautious and very, very specific to be incredibly respectful about uh, uh, to them as a person, not necessarily to their beliefs. You know, if, if what they're saying doesn't make sense, we will politely point out any particular logical flaws or, or ask questions and allow them to put forward their case. And you know, in, in giving people the voice to do that uh, and questioning where their logic is, uh, was, is going wrong, I think that's where you get a lot more out of it than just yelling, you know, you're a fraud and an idiot. So I, I agree that it's, it's all about tone, but I think uh, from what I've seen, those, the campaigns, certainly the, the libel campaign, certainly what we try and do, actually tries to hit that tone. Yes, I think this started partly because uh, Rebecca and I got into something of an, an altercation about the Science Museum exhibit. The Science Museum have the, the welcome collection, which is very good. They've added on to it an appalling bit of advertising for, for quackery, which is utterly uncritical and, to my mind, quite uh, disgraceful. But um, Rebecca seemed to excuse it on the grounds it was a sort of anthropological approach. No. <laughs> I, I um, well, the Simon Singer actually, and I actually got an appointment with some of the senior science museum people. Now, I, I don't think there's any point in being rude to homeopaths, especially they can be very abusive to me sometimes, exceedingly abusive, usually semi-literate, which is sort of interesting as well. Um, not too good on apostrophes and stuff. Um, <coughs> they, um, but. It is no use writing polite letters in, through official channels to vice-chancellors. You've got, you've got to be rude to them. They're lying, they're dishonest, and you've got to say so straight out to have the slightest effect. Likewise, you're not really trying to get at the people who buy the pills or even the, 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 the high street homeopaths who sell them. The, the, the directors of Boots Pill are dishonest liars and must be got up and told so in the bluntest possible terms you can imagine. Not because it's nice to do that, but because it's the only damn thing that works. Mm. They will not uh, respond to, to any reasonable uh, approach, but they sometimes will respond to embarrassment, especially loss of stock value. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, it, it's really, if you go for the right target, I mean, it just, it just gloves off as far as I'm concerned. I, I think people like uh, vice-chancellors, Westminster and Edinburgh and Napier are just rather wicked people, actually. They're just dishonest, and that's, I, I have no hesitation in saying so. The, the, 
I operate on the principle that there's two people who have never been known to sue for libel, two groups of people. One's the royal family and one's, one's uh, vice chancellors. And, and, and if there's a departure from that precedent, I'm in dead trouble. Um, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, if you have a targeted campaign where you're trying to speak to um, people in government, to vice-chancellors and so on, then absolutely you take the approach that is appropriate to that. I mean, you did say that none of the vice-chancellors have written back to you. So, <laughs> but that may suggest that if you had started your campaign in a different way, had a different tone on your website, you might have had an, in, a conversation with them that you didn't have. It's just possible. I don't know. Maybe you're right. They're embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I, I don't know any. I can't even say that some of my best friends. But um, that's, that's one thing. The other question, though, is um, I, I'm, I appreciate what you all say about where the harm is in things like homeopathy. I completely understand where you're coming from. But the question is, who are the groups that are really, really at risk of this? Who are the people who are likely to use these medicines instead of anything else? People who don't go to their GPs, people who don't trust science at all, people like that. Those are not the people that are responding to you. They're not the people who are even reading the broadsheets. They may not... I mean, I don't know enough about who use... I mean, it's not an area I've studied. But it seems to me they could be people who are not likely to be on the internet as others. They're not as likely to be perhaps reading English. They're not as likely to be reading newspaper articles. So there is possibly the group that is most at risk, the group who should be trying hardest to reach, are not the people being reached by the kinds of campaigns um, that we talk about, even Sense About Science, which I think is going furthest in terms of um, what it's trying to do. Um, so I think that's an, uh, an important thing to think about. Um, so um, I find myself quite in agreement with some things Rebecca says. So some of the job I do here involves managing the science festival team and running outreach and things like this. But my interest is, is very much in this area of understanding why people might believe that they would take a homeopathic remedy or something similar. So I think you, understanding those factors are really interesting in planning your communications. And so um, a lot of the anthropological, sociological research would say it's because the medical model doesn't um, solve all everybody's ills. So this idea of, which you'll be all familiar, you know, there's a pill for every ill or your seven-minute co GP consultation is going to, is going to sort you out. Um, people feel, you know, there's a lot of research that sort of indicates why people don't feel that they can address all the problems they have through following the um, conventional course of treatment that they're offered. And some of those are because um, that people feel um, very out of control if something serious happens to them in their lives, like a serious illness. And in an attempt to take more control, they um, seek out information in all sorts of ways. They seek out some attempt. Because we live in a society where um, people are more and more dependent on the products of science and technology, but unfortunately they feel more and more removed because um, of this expertise that, that, that is in there. And so this kind of... Tr this, this feeling that you need to put your trust in the kind of the people in white coats is quite is quite challenging for people because they they feel like they don't have the tools to um, interrogate that as well and so um, I appreciate many of the campaigns that have taken place because I think they're great but you still are in a situation where um, access to peer-reviewed scientific information may be behind a paywall and all of these kind of things and there's great work to bring that stuff out and report about it but um, when you look at the average citizen and the average amount of time they have to look into this information, they're going to use Google. And when something like the MMR vaccine comes out and there's all of this, you know, smoke and kind of, you know, what, how do people find their way through it? They're kind of using information retrieval tools at their disposal and they're finding all sorts of conflicting information. So I think 
something sense about science are doing are really useful because it means this stuff is kind of Googleable and, and findable. But um, as scientists, you are kind of um, privileged and access to some information that it's quite difficult to get other people to engage with unless you talk to them in terms that, that are kind of understandable and meaningful for them as well. And who has time to talk to everybody in the world? There are 7 billion people in the world. So a lot of what we do, actually, is... I mean, I personally, I don't really care if someone uses homeopathy in some ways. I don't. People do a lot of, an awful lot of things that I don't think are based on ration and reason. I know that a lot of my friends who are GPs, for example, have quite rounded views. They know people get a lot of uh, comfort from things that aren't necessarily based on the best science and evidence, be it prayer or homeopathy or other things. And, you know, if that makes them better, if that makes them better, as long as they know what they're getting into. And they're not getting this uh, through sort of official channels, if you like. So that homeopathy, just to keep using our favorite example, isn't being paid for by the NHS or isn't being flattered with regulation as if it was a, an evidence-based medicine in the way that it is in the UK. Or people like the WHO aren't promoting homeopathy to treat HIV and malaria and AIDS in Africa, which they're not now because um, of a campaign that we ran a few years ago. So yes, you're right. It would be really good to speak to everybody on their own terms in every part of the world. But sometimes that's not possible. And it's getting through it from top down instead of from bottom up is the way to do it. It's getting to these intermediary groups and these official bodies and getting them to take a stand and then letting everybody look to that as their model. And just a, a final one on that. Actually, it's rather educated middle-class women, I'm, I regret to say, who are the, the predominant group who subscribe to, to, to balmy medicines. It's not a matter of education or poverty either. But well, something like India, for example. Oh, well, in, in, yeah, that's a sort of neo-colonialism. Imagine India being colonized by a late 18th century German form of balminess, awful. But, but um, you know, it's a question of who you're at. I don't think anyone wants to, to ban any sort of beliefs. What you want to do is for people not to be deceived, and that means proper application of laws that mostly actually exist but aren't enforced about deceptive health claims. I, if, if you go into Holland and Barrett or Boots, you will be told the most appalling lies. I do it as habitual. I just uh, habitually, I ask them for some advice from their expert team, and it is absolute lying crap most of the time. They simply don't know. They have no expertise. But um, you will get awful advice from these places. And they're the people I'm, I'm upset about, the people who give the bad advice, the people, the directors of the company who know nothing about it. Uh, the, the people, you know, are not really interested in talking to the consumers of it or, the, or, or, the, um, or, or even the low-level providers of it who actually believe it. Though at what level, there's a very thin line, I think, between delusion and fraud and for example people like Patrick Holford who make a fortune out of selling supplement pills I've got, oh, we've got your tape recorders going <laughs> legal letters from him before I'm, I'm pretty sure he, he's in, on the fraudulent side I don't think he can really believe all the advice he gives about supplements because he makes a lot of money from them um, but many of them do genuinely believe it uh, and that, that's, that's fine as long as they don't make false health claims there are laws about that Craven standards refuse to implement those laws. Um, so, you know, libel reform is the first um, legal thing that needs to be changed, but also laws about uh, making uh, false advertisements also need to be changed. The next priority. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I would just say on that, I think that that's absolutely right to target campaigns in that kind of way. But if you back up your polite requests that people don't sort of put misleading advertising down and so on with websites and Twitter presences and so on that can be very antagonistic to people who slightly disagree or question what you say or the way that you've said it, um, then I, I don't think that's going to be the most productive way of doing starting a campaign like that. What I think I'm hearing from a lot of you really is that maybe there is an information problem, but actually much more than an information problem, there seems to be a filter, a filtering problem. Information is out there and people go and find it on Google. They find some sort of information, whether it's good information, whether it's bad information, and it seems that what I'm hearing from all of you is that the real challenge is, and in a way you all do this in your own ways, is actually to, let, to filter out the good information and to disentangle it from the bad and the misinformation. So the real question seems to me is, what filters do we need to construct using the internet, using other mechanisms to let that good information, uh, meaning scientifically validated information, bubble to the top? skeptics um, thing was that Google, not, not everyone is in Google, not everything, not, people don't always go to that as their first place um, port of call. Probably everyone in this room does, but we are not necessarily representative of the entire world. Yes, where is Frank Swain? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I mean, well, you'll never be able to filter everything on the internet, will you, or everything people say, or everything people publish and leave leaflets around on, or everything, every conference people set up to talk about these things. There's no way you'd be able to do that. But we might be able to equip people to make sense of that and to give them the tools they need to cut through that. So something, the first thing that Sense About Science did when they were founded long before my time was to bring together a working party on peer review as a potential tool for the public to make sense of science. And all the scientists and the editors of journals and people who came to this big meeting at Sense About Science office told us the public don't want to know about peer review. Peer review is what happens in science. So when somebody um, does some work, they write a paper and they go to publish it in the journal and it goes through peer review. So it's looked at by people in the same field as it for originality and significance and validity. And if it passes those tests, it gets published in the journal. And people are telling us the public care about that, that scientists barely even care about that. That's what goes on in science. What does that mean to anybody else? But we wrote a short leaflet explaining what peer review is for the public and sent it to, sent it quite wide. And we know that now it's been used by patient group helplines, for example, when people phone them um, and say, I saw this thing on the internet, how do I know whether it's science or someone's opinion? And the first step is check viewed. It's not perfect, the system isn't perfect, and it's, you know, and we know that since we published that leaflet, things have changed in society. People are now asking, is it peer-reviewed? I've literally overheard somebody saying that. Somebody I know isn't a scientist in a coffee shop. And since then, people who, in the media, for example, who are writing stories about scientific breakthroughs are saying this has been published last week in Nature or as reported in the Journal of Comparative Neurology now so that people can, when they're reading the stories, take that first step and take that first little um, leap. Well, there's one. Getting people to ask these questions, is it peer-reviewed? Um, what status has it at? Has it been replicated? These are the kind of things that we're trying to make a common language. We're trying to get the language of research and science out there among the public and give them exactly these things, these filters. So that's what, yeah, as I said, we'd never be able to control the internet, but giving people those kind of tools is the first step.
I just want to say, I think this is uh, valuable to try and get this information about peer review out, although you're kind of back there at communicating with trying to get the mass of the public to understand, but I think it's worth doing. I think one of the difficulties with peer review in the public is um, unfolding scientific controversies. So um, something like um, the BSE crisis or the MMR vaccine was somewhere was a time when information kind of came out. The scientists were giving their best state of information. If you something like the BSE crisis, they would... Re- we're saying this is our best um, estimate on the research so far as to what we think the risk is to human health. And so the filters that are in peer review are, are available, but they're kind of play, the public are dealing with the news that's coming out every day in the headlines. Or, um, and so the, the chance to make black and white decisions about whether you think you know, nuclear power stations should be built in, you know, in, in, in Japan, well, of course they need to be, but you know, people are trying to assess information that um, scientists are making conflicting you know, uh, statements slightly or, or whatever they're doing. And of course, that's the process of, of science as it unfolds. And some scientists get very concerned. Oh, no, the public think that we don't, we don't know what we, we, we agree on because they're seeing this controversy unfold. But actually... The public can see that, you know, they, they can see that there is not um, a, a, a chance to say everything in black and white. Sometimes they have to see it kind of play out. Yes, and I, I worry about peer review, and this is getting off anything to do with quackery. This is real science. The, the trouble is we're run by politicians who are adamant they want numbers for everything but don't understand numbers. So they think you can assess somebody by the number of papers they publish. As a consequence, people write far too frequently and quite not infrequently rather bad papers. There has been in response to that an enormous increase in the number of journals so that anything, however dire, can be published in a journal which can claim to be peer-reviewed. And there's been a sort of corruption of of real science which has come not really through the sort of quackery but I guess it comes through the sort of dishonesty which allows vice chancellors to run quackery courses. Um, so they, they I, I think this is really reaching serious proportions. And the awful thing is it's largely the fault of scientists themselves, or at least of ex-scientists, the people who run the research council who need their head examining in my view, because they're, they're, they're imposing, they're, the research council are actually almost imposing dishonest practices on, on scientists now. They make it compulsory to explain the impact of your research before you've even got any results. How the hell do you know what the impact is when you don't even know what the answer is yet? Uh, but there's uh, imposing a 20, putting 20% weight on that in the, in the latest research exercise. This is asking for made-up preposterous statements, which are about as worth as much as a homeopath would write. Uh, and you know, this, this, this is actually reaching a fairly serious circumstance. I'm much more, much more worried about that than I am about any sort of quack medicine, actually. Science itself is in danger of, of distortion and corruption by this sort of uh, political pressure, though mostly not from politicians, actually, from scientists. Um, I, when you were uh, talking, I was just reminded when CERN was uh, switching on and a lot of people thought that it was going to blow up the world, and uh, the... Uh, the press officer from CERN released a statement say, <laughs> saying, well, the world hasn't blown up yet, so it's safe. Uh, you, had a, you had a question? Um, there have been some very effective campaigns to, uh, for instance, somebody mentioned automatic e- emailing of MPs. Lots of campaigns do ask people to email their MPs, and uh, I've uh, done some through um, financial websites asking people to email about legislation. But... Um, 
a lot of people get their information about medicine in particular from newspapers, and a lot of it is written by very lazy or stupid or ignorant journalists who shouldn't really be writing about uh, medicine and not understanding statistics or anything that would be so they could judge nonsense. So I'm wondering what could be done about that? Could the same technique be used? I'm not sure editors would be particularly interested, but maybe like uh, mass mailings of the Press Complaints Commission could actually get them to wake up, even though it's um, a regulation body. If it got if it, if it just became a nuisance to them, that might have an effect. Or no, this is actually taking, taking more, uh, some attention to whether uh, um, stuff about medicine in their papers is, is actually true or harmful. I don't know if you know much about the PCC, but they don't tend to uh, <laughs> react when people um, uh, send letters in. You have to be the person that was written about in in the newspaper. They're completely useless. But <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, they're useful for if someone slanders you or just writes something about you, right? Um, a lot of the things that people write, that the journalists write in the, the Daily Mail, just use it for an example, um, aren't maybe what they meant to write. Let me start that again. We work an awful lot with a lot of the science and medical journalists in this country and the consumer journalists and the political journalists to try and help them get things right. And they want to get things right. And they're working under terrible pressures and they're often editorial lines in their papers. So maybe what they wrote wasn't what they wanted to write already. We know that sometimes editors of papers want a certain story to go and they ask the journalist to write it and they don't, but it appears anyway. So there are many, many reasons why it was a good thing to write to a journalist when you see a story you think is a bit rubbish or where something is wrong. Write to them because if they've done it wrong, it'll tell them how to put it right. But if for some reason they wrote that and they themselves are as angry about it as you are, it really helps them to be able to go to their editor next time they've been asked to write a fluffy piece about some dodgy treatment or overhype some research and say, no, look, last time I did this, 47 people wrote to me and said, I was a rubbish journalist, do you want this to happen again to their editor? So it's always a good idea to write to the journalist and say, don't do this again, because it, it helps them and it helps us all, it helps get it right in the future. So do write to the journalist is my advice. Um, we've heard a lot about sort of attacking bad science. How do we go about promoting good science? I think quite often you can uh, you can use bad science to illustrate good science. I mean, Ben Goldacre, for example, whose whose aphorism that is really, did a wonderful series on lifestyle nutritionists on Radio Four. You can still find them on on the web, they're not on the iPlayer, of course, they delete them, damn them, but, they, but, uh, but they're on my site, and probably on his too. <laughs> um, the, pointing out the whole problem of causality. I mean, why, why is it that we know next to nothing about whether um, how you eat affects your health? You know, the amount that's known is vastly exaggerated by the <laughs> official channels, and very, actually remarkably little is known with any certainty. The World Cancer Research Fund assure us annually that you can reduce cancer by 40% by changing your diet. Well, yes, maybe if any one of about, every one of about 400 rather small correlations were directly causal, that would be true. And there's damn all evidence that they are. You know, it's, it's a sad thing that some very simple questions turn out to be very hard to answer. Does red meat give you cancer? It, the, the question is almost unanswerable. And, and in, in and I would differ in my interpretation of the data from the World Cancer Research Fund, too. Um, you have to resign yourself, I'm afraid, to saying only too often, I don't know. 
uh, and the public are not very good at that, and actually neither, neither the scientists are very good at it. I, I just wish people would say, I don't know the answer to that question a little more often. I would back that up. I think actually being able to say, um, to, to explain some of the uncertainties, the difficulties and so on, um, and you know, with breaking news and so on, and why people can't give um, quick and easy answers, I think is very important. And acknowledging that scientific advice does change. I mean, this is the kind of thing that um, consumers um, of newspapers get. They, they get conflicting advice about what is right or what is wrong to do with your children or whatever it is all the time. And that, of course, creates distrust. It's like you were told this at that point. Why has the advice changed? And I think that needs to be dealt with um, clearly and honestly. Um, because there's, there's much of a tendency to say, you know, if someone says something that the scientific consensus says is wrong at the moment, to say, well, of course not, you're stupid, you know. And, and that, you have to understand why they've got to that position. It's not because they're stupid, it's because they've taken on certain bits of information but don't have enough to know why the consensus has changed and why um, they should change their behaviour as a result. Yes, you know, you take red wine, for example. One week it's good for you, one week it's bad for you. This actually brings science into disrepute. And it is, of course, it's because you can't, or you haven't at least done randomized studies. You know, the causality is always in doubt from those. But that doubt is never explained properly. And it's not only not explained properly by journalists, it's not explained properly by university press releases either. You're up against not just people who don't understand science, you're also up against university PR machines who love to get a story into the headline and often give out press releases which are actually quite misleading, I'm afraid. Uh, the journalists then just copy them because they've got to produce an article in 10 minutes. And, and the fault actually lies with the university or even frequently with the author of the original study who's hyping it up a bit. And this is, this is a bad thing, I think. Um, this is uh, specifically to Sheila, but it's kind of to everybody as well. Um, you'd mentioned earlier that the government has now published a, I think it was a, you said a white paper to do with libel reform. And what I was really wondering is how good actually is that paper? Because I know any reform is, at this point is better than no reform at all. But is it cosmetic? Does it actually address what's significantly wrong? Or is there still more work to be done there? That's an excellent question. Um, and I'm glad you asked it, actually, because, yes, there is more to be done. And we'll all be calling on everybody who signed up to the campaign before and everybody in this room to help us with it. It's, um, as you said, some reform is better than no reform. And it's not too bad. There are some very good things in the draft bill, which is what it is, but there are some things that didn't get in. Something that we've been campaigning for all along is a defense against libel for public interest. So anything you write that's on a public interest subject should be protected because there are some discussions that just should be had. So people talking about science and medicine, for example, um, should be allowed to talk about science and medicine and people who promote bad science and that kind of thing. So there are some discussions that should be just aired because it's not necessarily so that everything everybody says is 100% true all the time. But as um, Harold Evans, who was the editor of the Sunday Times, the time they did the investigative thalidomide, told us if he had had to wait until they were 100% certain that thalidomide was linked to these birth defects they were seeing, they would never have published their investigative journalism piece. So they had enough evidence that they were certain, so they published it. But as the law is now, it forces you to wait until you are 100% certain about something before you can say it. So what we've been calling for all along is a defense that protects 
discussion in the public interest so that people can talk about these things, even if they're not 100% certain. So there's a public interest defense in this draft bill, but it looks like it's de um, designed for investigative journalism. So we want it to be stronger so that bloggers and people like us who write about science issues but aren't investigative journalists and haven't done a huge investigative report can still use it. So that's in, but we want it to be stronger. And there are parts in there that just haven't appeared. We did a lot of campaigning with the ISP, the Internet Service Providers Association, Facebook and so on, calling for the government to modernise the laws to keep up with the internet, and that hasn't appeared in this draft bill. So that's something we'll have to keep working on. Now the draft bill is going to a consultation period, so we have until the 10th of June to respond to the particular things in it. And after that, it's going to a scrutiny committee of members of both Houses of Parliament who will be taking more evidence from interested parties into what they think should be in the bill, and then the civil servants will rewrite it and it will go to Parliament, probably next year at that stage, with potentially being legislation by the middle of next year. So we still need to keep this on the parliamentary agenda, as well as responding to what's wrong or missing in it, because we know that there are like 40 bills on the table for the next parliamentary session, but only 12 slots where legislation can be made. So we'll be calling on everybody for two things, to respond to the things in it that are wrong or that need to be added, and to write to their MPs to make sure they know it's still something we all care about. So yeah, there's still plenty more to do. Um, the Justice Minister said a couple of weeks ago that our campaign has made it so that this is an issue that they think they can't ignore. We have to keep telling them we're still watching them and we're still going to be looking out for this and we still care about this. So that's what we'd be calling on everybody to do in the next couple of months. One thing that, that um, because this is about making a difference and uh, doing things kind of online and making a difference, what advice would you give to people who, who are just starting out? Are there any particular tools that you would recommend? Uh, would you recommend, you know, could you re recommend jumping straight into doing a podcast or, you know, tiptoeing your way in? Does anyone have any advice? One reflection I had listening to all the speakers, which I thought was amazing, was this um, mixed methods, because I thought it's so interesting that we're here face to face talking about social media and online communication. So I think what's amazing in the last few years is how like Twitter has led to face to face catch ups. And, um, you know, we're talking about podcasts, we're talking about communication through the print media. So. I just feel excited about the range of methods you can use. We've got someone who's working in a museum. We're talking about festivals. We're, there's this whole ability to kind of reach out to audiences. And maybe I think this whole skeptic thing is a bit like a micro trend. You know, like you can meet the people that face to face that you didn't know existed in the community and they're living, you know, uh, half a mile down the road from you. So um, I think, you know, kind of using the method that you find most, uh, you know, interesting to you and that you feel enthusiastic about using and you um, then that's a, that's a good place to start. Yep, absolutely agree with that. And different things you want to do will require different methods. It might be a letter to an MP to put something up their agenda. Or it might be um, a campaign or a hashtag on um, Twitter, because sometimes a hashtag can be a campaign, or at least start one. So, um, Or it might be a letter to your local paper, or it might be a letter to Trading Standards or the Advertising Standards Authority, if it's a complaint about something like that. So there are many, many different things you can do that um, will depend on the situation. There are many, many people out there writing about how to use those. I know there's the Nightingale Collaboration, who have just been set up recently by a group of skeptics, um, who, will have, who have a website explaining how to make complaints to the Advertising Standards Authority about dodgy signs and dodgy claims made in marketing materials. And Simon Perry has a website explaining how to make standards complaints if you want to complain about products or practitioners on your local high street. 
so there are lots and lots of different methods you can use and different things to do, and there's lots of resources out there for finding out how to do that too. So keep exploring, I think, and keep trying different things as well. Yeah, I, I think I'd echo that, really. I think, um, first and foremost, it's, it's trying to get an understanding of, of who it is you're trying to reach and, and how you're trying to reach them. You know, if you're trying to talk to um, legislators uh, and the people who make the regulations, then it is a case of um, dealing with um, you know, the Advertising Standards Agency, lobbying uh, your MP, that kind of thing. If you're trying to reach the person on the street, it's, it's not necessarily about using um, in complex you know, scientific papers and proof and because that you won't have the time to get their attention to give them that kind of, uh, that kind of story. It's trying to give them something snappier and, and something that's a man on the street who hasn't, uh, who did, you know, leave um, science at 16, you know, like I did, in fact, um, who hasn't done science since they were at GCSE, who haven't got the, the might not have the interest to, to sit and listen to something really sort of technical, try and give them something that's, uh, that's valid but also snappy and c they can take away. So, it's, yeah, I, I think... I would just advise, first of all, think about who you're trying to reach before you then start thinking about the, the ways that you reach them. And I think um, there are different tools to do that, but first get an understanding of your audience and, and design your tone of voice from there, really. I think I just write things that interest me, actually. I, when, when, one, of the <laughs> uh, one of the nicest days of my life was when Ben Goldacre put a very flattering comment at the bottom of the thing I wrote about, does, does bacon give you colon cancer? I went into the paper in some detail and we produced figures and discussed it in a, a way which I, I think you know, most men in the street could probably uh, pretty much follow, but I wasn't written with any particular audience just because I really wanted to know the answer myself to that problem. And it's, um, it, it seems that there's enough people around to, to give one a decent readership, though nothing like his, <laughs> so to say, who were interested in that. It really depends what you want to do. If you're enthusiastic about something, then just do it, and it may take off or it may not. You may get three hits per day. You may get many, many more. Um, but if you really, really want to make a difference, I think you have to think very hard about who's actually um, going to be listening to you and whether you're in that proverbial echo chamber or, or not. Are you speaking to anyone who is not likely to be agreeing with you anyway? Um, and if you really want to make a difference, I think you need to be looking at other campaigns, perhaps joining with them, thinking about... Um, other political campaigns about um, parliamentary, about libel, about um, environment, about education, literacy, all of those kinds of things are bigger social issues that can get people from all over the world um, along with you that your, part, your campaign could be part of that. So that might be a real way of making a difference. I can't remember when I first heard the term sceptical blogosphere, but it's not been very long ago, maybe two or three years ago even. And, and people ask, and of course... Quacks often think we're all paid by the, the drug industry and the, it's a great conspiracy to crush them. The one thing that is tip, really characteristic of it, and which I hope lasts, is that it's anarchic. No two people are the same. Each has their own approach. There are no rules. There's no organization. Uh, there are, unfortunately, some rather expensive conferences now, which I don't go to on principle because uh, the whole point of this is that it's a sort of um, you know, bottom-up, do-it-yourself job, but I don't approve of paying 300 quid for a conference, not even TAM. <laughs> and and, and uh, long may that anarchy last, because once you have a, a, a royal sceptical society with a code, yeah. a, co a code of behavior and exams you must pass, it's dead. <laughs> Excellent. I think we'll just leave it there. We'll um, continue the conversation over alcohol. I think that's the plan. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much to all of the speakers. <laughs> <laughs>